Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Well, good morning again. Thanks uh, again for all of uh, the well wishes, uh, the meals already that we have been able to share with God's people here down in uh, Spain and the encouragement. And again, uh, special thanks to Rafael, family letting us use, uh, use their home. Uh, Cheryl and I have been absolutely loving your country. Some of you are like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not actually from Spain, but it is your country if you are here. Uh, this is the field that God has you in. And so uh, we've been getting out a bit. And so we have a couple pictures here already. Uh, this is over in the pier. I think this is, you said this was over near a boat or something. Is that right, Roger? Is that, I wouldn't know. I hadn't seen it yet. The boat. Just, just, just saying. And we also, let's see, we also went to, where else? What's the next one? Oh, Yes. This was, what is this, the uh, Horadada, the, the Pilar Horadada. We went for a little drive and we started doing some, some sightseeing and it, and it must have been windy because my hair is really quite a mess there. All right. And then the, I didn't know, it was small in my phone. I shouldn't have sent that one. Anyway, the next one, uh, the next picture, this is a little nightlife. She tried to ha she tried to take me to a discotheque or something you guys have down there. And I said, that just sounds like sin. And so I said, no, absolutely not. I made her walk the pier instead, uh, instead with me. And so I'm telling this to my family. I'm going to tell them, man, this is such a beautiful place. You guys would love it. It would be so amazing if you came. I said, everything is beautiful down here. Even the pigeons, I noticed, were beautiful. I got, I got this picture of pigeons. I saw this. I was like, these pigeons are beautiful. We don't have pigeons like this. And so as I was thinking about this, I sent that to my kids. They were like, oh my goodness, such pretty pigeons. And I was like, I'm going to show you just how ugly New York pigeons are, just so you have an idea, because it sounds silly that your pigeons are beautiful, because they're just pigeons to you. They're like white rats. But, but like to us, they're really pretty. And so I said, I Googled New York <laughs> And not only did I not find, it was not just a New York pigeon, a New York rat attacking a New York pigeon. And at the end of this horrific, murderous scene, some guy comes running out of his house and he starts slamming down. But, but they're this big. So I don't know who he's trying to kill. I don't know if the guy in the video is trying to kill the rat, the pigeon, or both of them. It looks like he was trying to save someone, but he was whacking them. That's New York. And so... We are having an absolutely uh, beautiful time. Uh, now, I, I don't know where all of you guys are from. Uh, I, I've just been kind of getting the lay of the land a little bit. Um, I, I had heard that a bunch of people here were from England. Is that true? All right, we have a few from England. And then, but then, then Rogier and his family, you, you guys are from Holland, but... But I knew that as the Netherlands, and I was so embarrassed because he kept saying Holland, and I had to Google it to figure out, because again, now, not only are we from New York, I was actually educated in New Jersey. And so if it sounds like I've said something wrong or wonky or made some reference or anything like that, it's true, because I was educated in New Jersey. So I was like, Holland, Netherlands? I thought, and then I knew there was something about Danes and Denmark, and I, did, I didn't know if they were related, so I was just, so as we, we get picked up from the airport, and we're, we're driving over here, I'm trying to, to 
to, to pick Rogier's head a little bit, to his brain, to see like who you people are, right? To figure out what, what you're like and what kind of a, a message might be helpful. And so if you like what's happening here, I'll take full credit for it. But if it goes bad, it's his fault because <laughs> he told me what you guys should hear. And so I let him pick the topics in that short drive from the airport. Um, by the way, he also said, I asked him how long should I, I, I preach? Because, you know, I don't know what your, your church culture is. Uh, and so I asked him how long, and he said, uh, one 40 sermon. 140 sermon. So I assumed he meant a 140-minute sermon. I've only prepared 120 minutes today, uh, but he said 140-minute sermon. Uh, and so the English, it was there, but I didn't exactly quite get it all. So I've only prepared. So who else, who's not from England? We, we know we have some from Holland. All right, where are you from? Canada. Is that nearly England? <laughs> so Canada, excellent, welcome. And you live down in this area now? Oh, excellent. And, all right, who else? Who's not from Canada or Iceland? Oh my goodness, that wasn't the one that was for sale. No, that was Greenland. I forget. Didn't Donald Trump offer to buy something at one point? I forget. <laughs> it was some random, what random thing? Iceland, worth a visit? Should we head there next? For us to go visit? You live here now, yes. But good for us to go visit Iceland. Okay. All right. Because sometimes people leave where they were because they, they didn't want to be there anymore. Other time they left because of the weather. And Iceland sounds like one of those places. I don't know as much about it, but it, it is called Iceland. Uh, who, who else? Where are we from? Go ahead. Belgium, oh yes, I met earlier, I met you guys earlier. And Bulgaria, yep, I'm not even going to take a shot at it. <laughs> now I have a general idea as to where that is. I looked at a map before doing this exercise, um, just in case I was going to, just in case I was going to get stumped. Where? Where? Kenya. Oh, excellent, wow, and you found your way here. For? What brought you, what brought you to Spain? All right, and then you, oh, you are from France. You can stay. Now, I was mentioning earlier that I only know English, and that's even questionable, um, the quality of my English. So if there's anything you didn't understand, it is not because your English is struggling. Uh, it is definitely because mine is. Uh, so anyway, very cool, and I hear that a, 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 South America, where's our South American... They're not willing to, oh, there you go, as you slink into your seat. Where from South America? Where from? Peru. Also worth visiting? Peru and Spain. You didn't go from Iceland to Spain. It was, yeah. Very nice. Well, we're really glad uh, to be here and uh, to get to know so many different folks from so many different places. It's really, uh, it's been very exciting and a blessing for us already. Uh, so I also heard that uh, you guys, that some of you have been in the faith many, many, many years. 
and uh, that I am allowed to bring whatever I can to full bear on a mature Christian congregation. And so that's what I'm hoping to do here over this, uh, the whole of this series, uh, which uh, we'll be doing the book of Ruth the whole time that we are here. So each week we'll be doing another act in this book uh, of Ruth. And so we'll be doing act two today. So as I'm, I'm uh, anybody doom scrolling? Anybody ever get into this pattern where you're scrolling and scrolling and you're watching things on the, on the internet and you realize, what am I watching anymore? How am I wasting? Am I the only one? I don't really do that. I heard a story about a guy who was doom scrolling. It wasn't me. Um, and so they call it doom scrolling, right, where you just get lost in this little uh, pit of videos. And maybe some of you are doing political videos or maybe some of you are doing who knows what other kinds of videos. But um, I was doing some scrolling and I was watching some, I got into a little thing of nature videos. Anybody see these like very cool nature videos? You're scrolling through and they show these great pictures of animals and, and then there's always like some bison that attacks somebody in Yellowstone National Park or something like that and you try to scroll past those but you watch some beautiful pictures of birds and scenes and, and all of a sudden I got to one and it was a little bit of a surprise. It said something like, crow gets big surprise trying to attack an eagle's nest. And I was like, oh, I bet he did. I bet he did. He went to go attack the eaglets, the, the baby eagles that had just hatched. But he's attacking the nest of an eagle. I was like, this should be fun to watch, right? Because here comes this little predator thinking he's, he's big guy in the block and some eagle's going to come and like take his head off or something like that. That's what the video promised me and I was excited to see it. Don't judge. So, so I'm, I'm very excited about this moment, and I'm watching, and this takes a horrible turn. The crow is in the nest with the eaglets all by himself. There is no eagle for the first 15 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute. Eaglets are helpless. I didn't realize how helpless. They're not much smaller than the crow, but they can't, they can't do anything. This crow takes the first eaglet, he starts picking at the back of its neck, pulling out feathers. Then he turns it over and he's picking at its face. He's picking, I kept watching it because now I'm in and they promised the crow was gonna get a surprise. And so I'm like, this better happen fast because I don't think this eaglet's got a lot of time. And he goes after the face of the eaglet, and he's picking it apart. And I'm finding this is, this is horrifying. I got to swipe, but my thumb is broken. It won't, it won't do the motion. It won't move. And I'm thinking this has got to end at any point now. It has to, has, something has to happen here. And all of a sudden, the crow moves on to the second eaglet. He, there's three eaglets. The third one is trying to get out of the nest. He's trying to get as far away from the crow as is possible. I'm thinking, the three of you gang up on the thing. Like, do something. Where is the eagle? Where is the, the parent? Where is the one who should have been protecting the nest? And I'm actually getting, like, distraught over this stupid little video. And I'm watching it, and he starts on the second one, and it's a repeat of the exact thing. He starts pulling it apart. It's a crow. These are eagles. These are these magnificent and glorious creatures, and they are being picked apart helplessly. 
I watched as far as I could and I realized there is no eagle coming and there's no surprise on this crow. This was a horrific video. And I'm thinking about it, I'm looking at it, I'm reading this, I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm thinking about it, and I go to myself, you know, this isn't actually the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be in a world where a crow gets to part, start picking apart eaglets. But of course, that isn't even the, the point, is it, right? Because we know that's just nature, that's just the way the world works. Well, yeah, the world works that way because we broke it. Because we rebelled against our creator. We decided that we knew a better way of doing it and we broke the planet. That's what the curse is all about. Go back, read Genesis. It tells us two good chapters and after that, it's mostly downhill. Mostly downhill. And now we, we, we live in a world that isn't the way it's supposed to be. We live in a world where famine strikes a land and where a guy can't provide for his family, where he ends up going to a land that he shouldn't have gone to, the land of Moab. He takes his wife, he takes his sons, and the three of them die in that land. And we're left with widows who have no one to look after them. They're now vulnerable. They're being picked apart by the crows of the of the world. In fact, on their way back from Moab, back into the land of Israel, we find Naomi largely saying she is empty. She's come back empty. She went away pleasant, went away full with all the hope that life would bring. And she's been picked apart, picked apart. This was all just, this is what we covered last week. There weren't supposed to be famines and there weren't supposed to be husbands and fathers who were dying and sons weren't meant to die and leave their moms as widows and childless and women from other countries weren't supposed to be despised and taken advantage of and, and this isn't the way it was supposed to be. But this is how it is. And so much more. And so much worse. We started to get a hint of this last week when we started off and it said, now in the days of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The, name's man, the, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and they lived there. Now, I can't review everything we did last week because it really would be a 140-minute sermon. But, but by way of review, the famine in the land gave us a hint that they weren't actually supposed to be leaving. The famine was, was God's judgment on Israel because of what was going on in the book of Judges. This week, not only do you have to read Ruth chapter 3, please read the whole of the book of Judges. And if you could do it in one sitting, all the better. It'll be a rough read but it will give you way more context for what we're talking about today and what we're talking about for the next two weeks. You have Elimelech whose name tells us that Yahweh is king. And yet from the book of Judges, we know that this was a time in history where the Israelites lived as every man saw fit because there was no king in Israel. In fact, that isn't even simply a message to us to say that there is no physical king because we'll quickly see that even with a physical king, 
things aren't going to hold out much better for much longer. So in fact, this is a reference to them not even recognizing Yahweh as their king. Limelech says Yahweh is king, and the scriptures tell a very different story. No one lives as if Yahweh is their king. No one is doing what they ought to do. And if you read Naomi, her name was, was blessed. It was, it was, it was meant, meant pleasant. It meant blessed. But then we saw at the end, she says, no, it's bitter. My name is bitter. I'm Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me blessed. I'm not full. I'm empty. And she comes back from Moab. Oh, a whole big story. We'll talk a lot more about Moab next time. But, but Moab, lots of stories. God's judgment was there. Elimelech tried to flee. He shipwrecked his family. Shipwrecked his family. And the days of the judges, that phrase, it, it reminds us. This is like watching the news today. Take the worst possible series, right? If it, if it bleeds, it leads. That's what they say, they say in the States. If, the, if something is horrible in the world, that's what's going to lead the headlines. Watch the headlines. Read it. Doom scroll through YouTube for a little bit. And you'll go, oh my goodness, what is going on in this world? Exactly what's been going on since the time of the judges and before. That's who we are. This is what we do. And reading the book of Judges, it seems like you'd be reading or watching the news today. Just change the names and the places of all of the horrible atrocities that are happening anywhere around the world, and you will find something like it in the book of Judges. Among God's people who had just been rescued out of the land of slavery and put into this promised land, and how quickly they devolve. Anarchy, racism, hunger, and extreme poverty trafficking of women. Pick your poison and you will see it here today and you have seen it since before the time of the judges. The crows of this world, they are busy picking at the eyes and the throats and the back of the necks and all of the tender spots of the helpless people in the world. They are having their way with them, and there are few who will step in and rescue them. They start with one, and then they move to the next little eaglet, and they bring their destruction. And those who ought to show up refuse. There's a phrase. It's rare in the Hebrew Bible. It says, a man from Bethlehem in Judah. That's who, who we're told Elimelech was. But that phrase, that exact phrase, doesn't show up that often. But it does show up a couple chapters earlier in the book of Judges. And it is a horrific scene. It shows up when a Levite, he had a, concubine. In that day, that was a version of a, of a second-class wife, you might say. All the rights and privileges, but she was a second-status wife in the family, time of polygamy. She was from Bethlehem in Judah. Elimelech was from Bethlehem in Judah. The author is trying to bring us, the narrator of Ruth is trying to put us right there at Judges chapter 19. It's a horrific scene. Something happens. We don't know what happens, but she ends up going back home. She goes to the, the hill country with him, but ends up leaving. Terrible things are happening, even among the, those who, who were called the Levites, the priests of that day. She goes and she leaves. 
he comes back and gets her. They're traveling back home, and he refuses, the Levite refuses to stay in a pagan town. The pagan town at the time? Jerusalem. It wasn't yet conquered. He decided to keep going until he found a town of the Israelites, God's people, so they could be safe in their journey. And they get to a village of the Israelites and a horrific scene unfolds. It's actually a repeat of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The house is surrounded. They demand that he sends the man out. These are his people, the Israelites. And just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, they kick the woman out. The woman from Bethlehem in Judah. Women, you know what this is. This is the world that we live in. The amount of abuse and the amount of people being taken advantage of, of women being... The whole scene repeats itself. It's a, it's a revisiting of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this time it isn't Lot and his kids and his wife in a pagan town. Now, it's God's people doing it to God's people. This is how bad things were in the days of the judges and so much more. It was vicious. The retaliation to punish the men who did this unthinkable thing was vicious, destructive. Even their justice was corrupt. No one knew what to do anymore. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet, we get to the end of Act 1, and not all hope was lost. Act 1 ended on a tiny little note of hope. The first was that, that Naomi was returning. That's what we needed. We needed her to come back to Bethlehem, back to the, to the house of bread. And she said she came back empty, but she didn't. She felt like she was now empty because she lost the men in her life. But what she came back with was Ruth, the Moabitess. She came back with a woman who would prove better than seven sons. And she came back because there was finally a harvest happening. There was bread again in the house of bread. That's how the act one ends. And so we have all of this despair, all of this loss, and we have just the tiniest little hint that something is afoot. Now we start in act, acts, uh, act two. You get the whole book of Ruth, four chapters, four acts. You can think of it like a play. This is act two. And I want to read the whole of this chapter to you. You don't have to follow along if you don't want to. You can also just listen. To, the, to the, how the narrator expected the story to be heard. Ruth chapter 2. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, 
she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked the foreman, who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked, I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You've comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. And she ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley and bundles and, and drop them on purpose for her. Let, her. let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day and then she beat out the grain that evening and filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who has helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. And she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, What's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the woman in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. We know Boaz. He's called here a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem. That phrase is actually used elsewhere, which is sort of a curious thing. It's not very common, but it shows up in Judges chapter 6 to describe Gideon. So Boaz is a man of some stature. He clearly has some money. He clearly has some political influence, some social capital. He's able to call a, a meeting of the town elders. But this particular phrase 
wants us to go back and think of Gideon. Gideon, who was called by God to do a mighty thing, brave, mighty warrior. Interestingly, Boaz ends up fighting. He's a warrior. And at first you look at this and you go, I mean, Gideon was a warrior, but not Boaz. Boaz isn't a warrior. He, he's a businessman. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't fight a single battle in the whole story. and We don't know anything else about him. And yet, of course, he was fighting a battle. I think the narrator wants us to make a connection with someone who you wouldn't necessarily see as a mighty and great warrior, but someone who is really actually going to do battle on behalf of the king. Interestingly, the, word Bo the name Boaz doesn't show up anywhere else, but there's a, a related word to it. It makes him unique in the scriptures. It doesn't show up anywhere else, except it seems related to a word that Solomon used to name one of the giant pillars at the temple which is sort of a curious thing. There's these two giant pillars. They're like 35 feet tall. They're cast in bronze. I think they're 18 feet around. And one of them ends up being named Boaz. Because it seems as if there's even a moment where we get to recognize that the weight of a society, the weight of God's temple will be borne up by men of deep strength, men of uncompromising compassion, so this was the little we know about Boaz we get right here from some of these texts and really from whatever anything else that we are told about him. Now Ruth is now the, one of the main characters in this scene, right? This is pretty a cool moment because Naomi's been kind of in charge and now Ruth is in charge and she is action. It's all action. All the verbs in this, it's, it's Ruth, she's doing stuff. She's going to go there. She's making a plan. She's showing the initiative, right? She's nearly asking Naomi, but not, not exactly. She's like, she is going to take charge and we get this picture now. And then Boaz starts talking a lot. Like most of the next thing is him giving speeches. He gives more speeches and he gives longer speeches than anyone else. And some of you women are like, yep, that's about right. That's exactly what I would have expected. But the point being that she was a woman of action. But Boaz is going to use his words to accomplish what needs to be done in his realm. Then in verse 2, take a look there. It says, let, out, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain. Now, this is a little bit of a different custom. Some of you are already familiar with this. It's the gleaning laws of Israel. Now, they didn't have social security or whatever you guys call it um, here in your countries or in Spain. They didn't have a way of taking care of people, right? A, not a pension. Some of you guys are on pensions, right? So the way you would take care of poor people in Israel was that the farmers were not allowed to harvest their fields efficiently. They were not allowed to be effective. This is, this is a pretty mind-blowing thing. For Americans, the idea of not squeezing every last little bit of value out of our investments, like we, you know, we have algorithms that follow the market just to make pennies here and there, just to, to grab money out of the market, right? Algor I have friends that write algorithms just to grab little pennies. And he's saying, here, you're not allowed, not yet on that one. We'll just go back to my other one. He goes, you don't, he doesn't, we don't even have that kind of an idea. In Israel, you weren't allowed to be that effective in your fields. You were allowed to go through and harvest. So imagine this is a big field of wheat. You've got to kind of get the picture here to know what was going on. The harvesters would come through. They would grab a handful of grain. They would chop it down. They would bundle it up. And then they would keep moving through the harvest. And then somebody would come through and they would gather up all of these cut harvests, you know, the cut grains, and they would bring them over to the threshing floor, and that's where you would separate the wheat from the shaft, the, the kernels from the, the garbage, right? But we 
would all go back through our fields and do it again. Because inevitably something would drop. Inevitably you would miss a piece. Later in the season, more stuff would grow up, stuff that wasn't quite mature, right? And you'd go back and you'd want to maximize it. In Israel, you were forbidden from doing that. God said, no, you can't do that. That's for the poor. That's for the foreigner. That's for the traveler. Everybody would be able to get food in Israel because you would follow, your harvesters would only come through once and you were forbidden by God to do it again. If you dropped a head of grain, if you forgot, let's say you bundled up a bunch in one of your back fields and you forgot your piles of grain that you had left, the book of Deuteronomy says you can't go back for it. If you forgot, consider that God that, that made you leave all that grain. And so you couldn't, you couldn't even harvest to the edge of your fields. It's your field. And God's like, nope, you can't harvest to the edge of your fields. Why? Because that's where the roads are. And so travelers coming along the roads could pick the grain and eat. They could have food. This was the provision for the poor and for the widow. It was a deeply just provision of the law. How many Israelites do you think were honoring that in the time of the judges? We know of one, because even Boaz's supervisor knew that the gleaning laws were still in effect. They knew that this was a way to care for the people who were less privileged and less resourced, to be inefficient and ineffective in your business for the good of others. I love this picture. It's so, it's so rich about the way that followers of Jesus ought to live in this world. And so Boaz does. And just, as it happened, the little verse 3 little thing, we'll talk more about the coincidences in Ruth next week. But the whole of this narrative is designed to bring us to one place. In fact, structurally, this is the next slide I wanted to show you guys. In, in Hebrew, many of you will know this already, there is, it's just, punctu, it's just vowel, uh, consonants. There's no vowels. We added the, the, they added the vowels later, punctuation. They didn't have exclamation points. They didn't underline and bold. We couldn't change the font or anything like that. So they had to have other ways of highlighting, especially in poetic literature, what was most important. Repetition was certainly one of the ways. Another was a literary device called a chiasm. And so the way that works is you, you match things up. And so the beginning of it, sometimes you'll read the Bible and it sounds like it's repeating itself. That's usually a hidden chiasm that we don't have access to because we're not as familiar with the original languages. But if the whole of this chapter starts with an introduction with a focus on Boaz in three verses. But it ends with a focus on Boaz in a few verses. Then you move into the next step. You see the A and the A over here match. The B, Boaz is blessing by his workers and his notice of Ruth. B, Boaz's blessing by Naomi for having noticed Ruth. You'll see this kind of sophisticated structure many, many times in the Bible. The point of it is to show you the outer side that matters in the story and, of course, where we're going. And the chiasm steps down all the way in to the central piece that he wanted to highlight and then it steps all the way out, repeating in a, in a whole new way what it just stepped into. Why is this kind of a cool thing? Not just because I like to be a little nerdy, but, but it's cool because it tells us what the author wanted to highlight for us. It is the central message of Acts, of Act 2, of Ruth chapter 2. The central message is found in those little verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 12. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the crux of the whole of Act 2. 
Yes, I know, Boaz replied, verse 11, but I also know everything about you, you have done, for, everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. She's committed herself to Yahweh. He sees it. He's committed to Yahweh. He already knows, and he's saying, listen, this is what you've done. You are now under the eagle's protection. You have come, and you have, you have set up shop here. You're an eaglet, and you have committed yourself to Yahweh as your provider, as your defender. And you look at that, and you go, Boaz, he gets it. He sees what's going on, her whole change of heart. She's left her, the gods of Moab. She's left her mother and father. That means they were still alive the way this is phrased. She left her family behind. She came to Israel out of devotion and loyalty to a, a, a Hebrew widow. And in that moment of devotion and in, of love, he says, you've come under the wings and the protection of Yahweh. The eagle has spread his wings. But here's the thing. How has Yahweh spread his wings over Ruth? How has he done it? Through Boaz. He's doing it through Boaz. Boaz takes no credit for it. He gives all the credit back to Yahweh. But, but how is she being protected? Boaz has spread the wings of Yahweh over Ruth and over Naomi and over their heritage, their future, and so much more when we get to the later chapters. Boaz, Naomi, Naomi says, go out, find a field. Ruth goes, she finds a field. That word field for Boaz is a cool little hint. Because when you go back to the very beginning of the story and we, she's, it says that she went to the country of Moab, the narrator uses the word field there instead. It's not just the land or the country of Moab, it's the field of Moab. They moved from the field of, of Moab to the field of Boaz. And in the field of Boaz, they find a whole different way of living. A whole different way. So will you create a field of Boaz? Will you create a field of Boaz? Because that's what we're being called to. And we see it here in this text. So many, for instance, will you become the men and the women that God will use to bring shalom to others? Because that's what we, we see here. There's a question that, that Boaz, that, that Ruth is asking here. Right? She said, why? Why? What have I done to deserve such kindness? Boaz answers her, right? He answers her. He says, verse 12, may the Lord reward you fully. The root for this word is this word for shalom. Proverbs 19, I think I've got Proverbs 19 up there as a, as a text. Proverbs 19 says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he will, guess what the word that is? Reward you. Same word as in our text. 
He will, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. This is what you, you said earlier today. You told us this is the, the role. This is what Jesus has said time and again. It's what Matthew 25, what our reading was. This is, this is what he's telling us. Listen, are you going to be the women and the men that God is going to use to bring shalom? God will reward you. Boaz is asking for that same blessing to be done. Will you comfort them? Look at verse 13. I hope I continue to please you, sir. He replied, you have comforted me. It's such a beautiful idea. The word here that he's using comes from another word. It's related linguistically to, to breathing. So imagine that you put yourself in Ruth's position here, a foreigner, a widow, no hope for the future, hitching her horse to another hopeless widow. That's largely what's going on here. There isn't an inheritance plan for them. She's not a child of Israel. She's, not, she's, she's a foreign widow. There is no man to make claim to Elimelech's property. There is no one in that cult. That's what they needed. They got nothing. And she, at what point did she start holding her breath? Okay, let's do that. Take a deep breath. Hold your breath. Ready? Hold it. I'm going to see who passes out first. And then take that deep breath out. There are entire breathing exercises that we get to do. And that sense of breathing out is what the comfort that she's finding. It's as if ever since their lives unraveled, she's been holding her breath. You know what it's like to have that kind of anxiety building up, that kind of pressure, that kind of tension? You know what it's like. You've been there. And then all of a sudden something happens and you go, you can finally breathe. And she's saying, I can finally breathe. Are you that person? Are you finding the people that have been holding their breath so hard they're about to pass out that they're losing the ability to think clearly because they have no oxygen left in the brain? Are you the kind of a person that will find them and because of what you do for them, because of your sacrifices for them that they can go, I can finally breathe a little. You've comforted me. You're giving me the space to breathe. Will you dignify the marginalized people around you? That's what Boaz did. There is this very cool little, little verse, right? I read it in 16. It says, Pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose. Every word, of, every word in the word of God matters, my friends. Every word. What is he doing there? Right? I explained that the, you, you get a picture now. Now you see what he's doing. The harvesters are being really, really good. I'm sure Boaz has got people who are working for him that are talented. They're good. They're not going to be accidentally dropping a whole lot of sheaves of wheat and grain. Right? He seems like the kind of a guy that's going to make sure he's, he's got expectations. He's got quality control issues. Right? He's going to have a supervisor he can trust. He's going to make sure. He tells them, I need you to be not so good today. This is what he's telling them. Why? Why? Why not just send Naomi some bread? Why not at the end of the day just take a big old bundle of wheat and grain that your, your people have successfully harvested, threshed, even bake some for her and send a big pile of, of food over to Naomi. He doesn't do that. He uses the existing laws 
but he, he pumps them full of a little bit of mercy and grace. Isn't this interesting? He's dignifying them. You give handouts and you make Naomi and Ruth more dependent on the goodness of Boaz and on the kindness, which they're going to be dependent on his goodness and kindness, but he's finding a way to transfer dignity to Ruth. Now she gets to work hard all day long. She doesn't know about this part. She just says, oh my goodness, they must be harvesting so quick. Look, I found some more grain, not knowing about the conversation that we know about, which is he's told the guys, leave a little more for her. She comes back, Naomi's mind is blown. How in the world could you have been so effective? Think of that conversation. You've worked so hard for me, my daughter. Dignity rises in the field of Boaz. We don't just do handouts, we create dignity. We create opportunities for worth and value, for, for work. If you have resources, this is who you are. If you're creating a field of Boaz, then do it the way Boaz would do it. Bring dignity, not pats on our back for how generous we can be, but find ways of instilling real hope and real dignity. Keeping the skills that, that they're going to need alive. It's such a beautiful, powerful... Some years ago, my son, when he was a kid, he was like very, very young, five, six, seven years old. We were playing a card game. And in this card game, I told them, if you cheat, we shred whatever card it is you cheated with. It was a collectible card game. So you had to go and you found all these cards, you collect them, you build your own deck. It's an old game called Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know if any of you remember it. Anyway, if you cheat, we shred your card. That's pretty... Hardcore parenting right there. I caught him cheating with his favorite, most powerful card. One of his rarest cards. Caught him cheating. And I made him shred it himself. Walked over to the paper shredder and with tears in his eyes, he shred that card. Justice was served. And I had parented hard. I was crushed. His sad face, his tears, his favorite card. I'm like, why did I even say I caught him? If he hadn't been cheating against his brothers, I probably would have turned a blind eye. I probably... So then, what do I do? I go to the store. Actually, I go to eBay at the time. And I found the card. I bought like a pack of like a thousand cards. This was one of the cards in that pack. But I can't just give it to him, right? Because there's no justice in that. So I go to the store... I buy a pack, I carefully open it up, a new pack, I slip the card in it, I re-glue it. Then we are in the mall and I just so happen to go into a store with him and he's like, Dad, can we get a pack of Yu-Gi-Oh cards? I'm like, sure, what a good idea. We go in there, I buy a couple of packs, but I swap out the pack and I give him the pack that I know has his favorite card in it. And he opens it up and he finds his favorite card. And he was like, I got my favorite. I'm like, this is what happens. You know, like God is looking out for you. <laughs> you know, be honest. And, and you were repentant from what you did. And, and, and it was just, it was a little white lie, but it was like dropping some wheat along the ground that he would find it. He would, and, it and so like, dignify the marginalized people. And then, and then consider this one. Think about the lunch. I read to you the lunch, right? The lunch scene, the mealtime, verse 14. Boaz called to her, come over here. Help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread, sour wine. Everything about this is countercultural. 
she should have been collecting the water. As a woman and as a foreign woman, she should have been collecting the water. And he's saying, my men will provide the water for you. Communal meals, the best of the, the dipping sauces. This wasn't for Ruth the Moabitess, unless, of course, you're in a field of Boaz. You don't sit at the table and eat their roasted grain. This is a communal family thing. The meals mattered. They were celebratory. They were, they, they, they were, this is how you made covenants and agreements and honored people and, and seating arrangements mattered. He's saying, no, this is, in my field, this is what Boaz, this is what Ruth gets. Everything about it. This is an ordinary moment made sacred by a follower of Yahweh. Can you do that? Can you take ordinary moments and make them sacred moments for Yahweh? Because that's what happens in the fields of Boaz. That's what happens. Will you do that? And will you give the glory to God? Boaz isn't patting himself on the back. He's not doing all the credit thing. In fact, he says, you've come under the protection of Yahweh. He doesn't say, I'll look out for you. He actually seems genuinely surprised that he's recognized later, that he's honored in that way. And he was like, I'm just, I'm just doing what you do as a follower of Yahweh. It's Yahweh who's providing all of this for you. Any grain that Boaz has is Yahweh's grain. Any morality he brings to the conversation, any of the resources, any of his time. Do you know what happens when Boaz gives things to Ruth and Naomi? He doesn't have them anymore. He's taking from his resources and from his family to give to others. He has less, so others could have some. That's the decision he's making there. And in all of it, he's like, no, 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 this is all Yahweh. It's under Yahweh's wings. Will you create a field of Boaz wherever you go? In whatever you do, in the ordinary moments, Will you make them sacred? Will you give the glory to God? Will you speak it out? That's what Boaz did. Will you be able to say, no, this, we do this because Yahweh. I give these things not because I'm an awesome person, but because of Yahweh. We serve in these ways, secret ways. Do you find secret ways of dignifying the marginalized? Do you find ways of taking quietly and secretly from your pocket and giving to others in need in a way that honors them? Do you invest so heavily that the whole of your field is a safe place? Are you using your influence? Are you using your money? Are you spending your time to create a field of Boaz wherever you go? You have it. You have resources. You might look and say, oh, I don't own a business anymore. Well, if I had a business, I would. I, when I did have a business, you have resources now that are Yahweh's, and he is asking you to use them and create a field of Boaz that will represent him in this world. Wings of Yahweh spread over the hopeless, the eaglets in this world that are being attacked and mauled and killed by the crows. They need you. That's what Yahweh is calling us to. That's what he's called. This is, this is why we have the book of Ruth in part to tell us this story. These are the days of the judges and we need good women and we need good men to stand up and defend those who can't defend themselves. That's what we need. Will you 
do it? Will you do it? We have a beautiful passage. It's Luke chapter 13. Jesus, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. Jesus is talking about spreading his wings over the people of Israel again. This is who you are. This is, you are a horrible people. You're about to kill the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, oh, how I want to spread my wings over you. I'm creating a field of Boaz. I'm creating a field of strength, a field of hope. I'm going to spread my wings over you. Yahweh's wings in Jesus spread over the people of God, spread over a world that desperately needs it. How do you think Jesus is going to do this? Through Boaz's today. This was what Jesus wanted, and he is going to do it when you stand up and do it. You are the wings of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what, what we want is these promises to stir our hearts whatever resources we have, Father, whatever time that we have, may we spend it creating fields of Boaz. Whatever money we have, Lord, it is your money. Can we use it? Give us the freedom from the idolatries. May we reject the gods of this age. Lord, whatever influence we have, in our communities, in our buildings, in our neighborhoods, whatever influence, whatever, whatever social clout we have, will we leverage it, Father? Whatever legal systems are here, may we bring hope and justice out of them. Father, we look here and we see an example in both Boaz and in Jesus of people who took the law, the letter of the law, and took it so much further. They embodied the spirit the deep compassion for those in need, for the marginalized, for the hurting, for the oppressed, for the trafficked, the hungry, the poor, those that we will often look down upon, Lord. We will often judge and criticize. Lord, give us your heart for them. Give us your love for them. To you be the glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.